Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Today, we are joined with Melissa Seligman. She is the author of The Day After He Left Iraq and also the co-founder of Her War, Her Voice. Melissa is also an incredibly dear friend of mine, and it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast this morning, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So we're going to jump right in and get started, as we always do. But the first thing that we'd like to to just chat about is just, can you give us a little bit about yourself? I am currently taking care of my husband. I've recently been determined, well, I guess determined by us, not really by the VA to be his caregiver. So I work with him daily and then also um, am writing and I am a death doula. I just recently graduated from that program. And I still run her war, her voice. So I guess I'm a a little bit of a jack of all trades at this point, (laughs) doing a little bit of everything. Um, But I am a military spouse, I guess I should say a veteran spouse at this point, and have been working with the military community for the last 15 years. So working through the with the military community, you are speaking specifically about her war, her voice. Is that correct? Yes. I originally wrote my book the day after he left for Iraq uh, in 2008. It came out in 2009. And from there, I started hearing from other military spouses who were saying, I feel the same way, or I'm so glad someone said it, which was really a relief because I felt like I had really put myself out there and I was waiting for the military community to tell me to suck it up or that I was a terrible person. (laughs) So it was pretty wonderful to hear from all of these military spouses who were saying, you know, right on and I'm right there with you and we're going to get through this together. And so from there, I decided to start the website that I currently have, um, which is Her War, Her Voice, and to do a blog at the time, live time during my husband's third deployment which was a really scary thing to do as well. But I found it to be another avenue of empowerment for myself. But then also more and more people started coming out of the woodwork. And my partner at the time, Chris Piper, was also writing about reintegration. So we had this great blog happening of what it was like to send someone to war and to wait and to keep the the home front going and taking care of children and what they were going through And then my partner was blogging about what it was like to try to reintegrate, uh, you know, back into each other's lives. And so we had this nice rounded conversation happening online in real time and more and more people started to join. And so that's what I've been doing since 2009. That's awesome. I know that there has been a lot of people affected by just being able to read your words, but also have the ability to say, you know, I feel the same way and I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one and, you know, maybe feeling so alone or frustrated or just scared in general um, by themselves and, and in isolation. So I think you have put a lot of a lot of merit behind those words and how how folks actually feel. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, when when you married your husband, did did you have an understanding at all of the military or, you know, any preconceived notions that it, it was going to be an, an easy, easy life? I, I had uh, a lot of experience with the military. All, all of my experience rotated around veterans in my family. Mm-hmm. My father's a Vietnam veteran. My two uncles are Vietnam veterans. And then my other uncle is a Persian Gulf War veteran. And then everyone beyond that, extensions, cousins in the Marines, cousins in the Army, cousins mm-hmm. in the Reserves, and uncles in the Army. Every war was pretty much represented. <laughs> so I had a lot of understanding of what service meant, what life looked like for people after war. My father definitely had PTSD, but didn't have the language around that until probably even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up very much 
being within that culture and understanding what war does to a family. And because I was so well versed in that, I swore I would never marry someone in the military. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, when I met my husband, you know, anybody who knew him at the time would say that they would have never thought he was in the, in the military. He was in the reserves Mm -hmm. and he liked to grow his hair out in between and had a goatee and his tongue was pierced. And I, I just never would have imagined that the guy I met in a bar was going to show up at my apartment door a few weeks later reporting for duty in the reserves, clean shaven with his uniform with him. And I mm-hmm. thought, seriously, I just did this. <laughs> mm-hmm. just got myself right into it. Um, so, you know, I, I knew about service, but... I don't think any of us at that time, because when he was in the reserves and I first met him, you know, this was before 9-11. And then after 9-11, he decided to go active duty. And when I dropped him off for him to go to his AIT training, um, that was the day that, if you remember on the news, all of the people pulling Saddam Hussein's statue down Mm -hmm. in Iraq. And we knew he was going to Afghanistan, but it was this moment of just a huge weight of sitting on the couch and thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be two wars. And, you know, I don't think any of us could have predicted what it was like or what it would be like to be sustaining a family around two wars and continuous and multiple deployments that had never been done before. So while I had this understanding of military life and after service, I I don't think there's any way I could have fully understood what was coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and in the midst of, in the midst of those deployments along the way, um, you have two beautiful children also. So we'll, we'll get to that later, but you know, life continues to happen at home um, even when your warrior is gone. Mm-hmm. Was there was there anything in particular that uh, prepared you for the possibilities of of your husband coming back injured in any way, Melissa? You know, I would like to say that that was something that I thought about, but I didn't, and I'm not sure if that's just because I couldn't allow myself to think that. Mm-hmm. And at the time of his first deployment, it was in the beginning of all of this, I think none of us really had seen yet all of the possibilities of what could come home. It wasn't until probably his third deployment that I had become pretty well versed in amputees or, you know, being around people who had lost someone. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say right in the middle of his second deployment, my first blackout, um, and seeing things on the news, like I actually caught a glimpse of him one time on the news, which I think has stuck with me more than anything else. Oh, wow. So it was in in the middle of that second deployment, and the second deployment was to Iraq. His first one was to Afghanistan, so it was a very different, and he had switched MOSs in between, so it was a very different deployment, you know, as they all are. Mm-hmm. Um it was right around then that I think it really just kind of started to settle into my bones of he he could get hurt or he might not come home. And I wish that I had thought about this or we'd made better plans before he left. So by the time he left for his third deployment, we had all of that in place. We had become really well versed in war. We had many friends that we had lost. You know, my kids were starting to get really comfortable going into the PX and seeing people with missing limbs and getting really used to having conversations with them and asking them what happened and that becoming part of our vernacular on a daily basis. So I definitely wasn't prepared when he went. It it took a couple of deployments to really get us in that mind space. Mm -hmm. Okay. So his second deployment was to Iraq and... Mm -hmm. That is when you engaged and dug in to write your book the day after he left for Iraq? Yes. And the way this began was a journal 
the first deployment, I decided I was going to be the best army wife there was. And I was super hua and I, you know, it was, I had it. And I followed the recommendations, uh, you know, giving to me at the time of don't tell him what's going on at home. Mm. Keep that, you know, for when he gets back. And that's what I did. And when he got back, I was so pent up and built up that I literally tried to leave him. I was like, I can't do this. And he was completely shocked. <laughs> like, what happened? Every time I talked to you, you said you were fine. And, um, you know, we worked through that. And I had this realization of I cannot allow an entity or, you know, the military or anybody else's opinion or decisions to dictate how we knew how to navigate our marriage and what was best for our marriage. So that second deployment, you know, I still didn't necessarily want to talk about those things. It was still the the 10-minute satellite call, and we had the delays in between. And I didn't want to spend that time with him, that precious time on the phone, having a, a deep conversation that we might not get a chance to finish. So what I decided to do instead was write it all and basically keep a journal. And I would send it to him, and he would respond so it wasn't until after the deployment that I decided I need to try to turn this into a book because I was seeing so many people who just didn't know how to talk about it. And they also felt incredibly scared to talk about it. And I felt scared to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But writing for me has always been a balm and a way for me to process things. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a way to help somebody else process it and also help myself. So what's interesting about my book is that my husband actually has the corresponding chapters back to me. Mm. And I've asked him several times to please publish it, but he's not interested. Mm -hmm. But um, Mm. he has basically the answers and responses to every situation in the in the book. That's very interesting. I never knew that, Melissa. It's very, Mm -hmm. very interesting. Well, maybe maybe at some point he'll reconsider. (laughs) I hope so, because he's he's actually a very good writer. I'm sure. I'm sure. Hi, Melissa. This is Mike. Hello. Hello. I uh, just want to say that we are so excited to have you on today. And uh, I am really looking forward to reading this book the day after he left Iraq. And uh, Sherry and I, uh, having worked with you in the past and with uh, her war, her voice, uh, you guys are just an amazing organization. And the things that you've done for not only the EOD community, but the military community at large, veterans and families, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you for for all that you and your staff have done. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, so one of the things that I would like to ask you about is uh, after the deployments had settled and your husband came home, I believe that uh, he was diagnosed with uh, PTSD and TBI. Is that correct? Yes. The the PTSD diagnosis actually took a really long time. I think that it was pretty clear you know, every time he went in to talk with someone that he had PTSD. And I, you know, I'd wager that it's pretty clear that anybody who's been to war, you know, nine out of 10 times have some kind of impact or effect coming home. So I know that that was not an, an odd diagnosis, but it's become a very prominent diagnosis. Um, the TBI actually came about with a lot of frustration and hard work and advocacy uh, in order to get that diagnosis. And it was not until the Army had decided they were going to med board him that TBI even started coming on the radar. And one of the interesting things that was said to him by a, a neurospecialist was the average person is knocked out 11 times. And you've only been knocked out 12, so you're fine. And I found that to be very frustrating because as the person at home, I was the one seeing him, you know, how he was before and how he was after. And, you know, the one specific concussion that he had changed pretty much everything. You know, he was falling, he would open the pantry and he was falling into the pantry or he'd be in the middle of saying something and forget what he was saying, or you could see him stutter in a speech or just get so frustrated that he couldn't get the words out and uh, was having, you know, dizzy attacks, throwing up major migraine headaches, 
And it actually took me getting on the phone with the neurospecialist and basically arguing that saying that somebody (laughs) should be able to get knocked out 12 times. I'm like, well, it only takes one for it to be damaging. So I, I find that to be pretty condescending. And it, it wound up that the army gave him temporary diagnoses. But once we got to the VA here in Asheville, they've been amazing. And when he went into, you know, transition to um, total and permanent and go through all those evaluations, he was very hesitant to even discuss or talk about a TBI and whether or not he had it because he had felt so diminished and, and like it was not even possible for him. And when he went in to speak with the neurospecialist here at the VA, you know, even five minutes into the conversation, this man was amazing and and told my husband, it's clear to me already just speaking to you that you have a TBI and I would like to go ahead and do the test to confirm and uh, make sure that I validate you that this is not a normal situation. So it was a a pretty long and arduous process to get those diagnoses and to be um, taken, I think, seriously. But since we've been here with the VA, it's it's been absolutely amazing and what they're doing to help him and the services they have they have available for him, as well as the research that they're doing on CTE and TBI and um, how hard they're working to validate that experience. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing that and and discussing um, your journey uh, for your husband and and uh, looking trying to get the TBI diagnosed, evaluated. Uh, we, when I say we uh, here at the, at the foundation and then prior before I came here, I, I saw the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's different for everybody. Uh, I understand that sometimes it could be one, um, one concussion episode. Uh, and also a lot of times even little ones can build one on top of the other. So it, it is different for everybody, but, uh, uh, but thank you for for sharing um, how how that evolved. And could you also speak to once these once these changes were known, and and of course you could tell, the, and the family could tell. Uh, but once they were known, and 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 you were sure what you were dealing with, how did how did those diagnoses or or changes in your husband? How how did that affect the whole family? It's been a very interesting journey. Um, you know, our kids at the time were quite a bit younger um, when we were starting to have these conversations around the dinner table of PTSD and TBI. And it wasn't until he was transitioning out of the military, which was in 2015, that we felt like we could start having more open conversations with our children because they were starting to realize and understand that he wasn't going to leave again. Because it, it was very difficult for them to get a sense of him being home and trying to settle into this, you know, quote unquote, new normal with the thought that he's going to leave again. And and I could understand that feeling that they were exhibiting of why even try? I mean, I've, I've even thought in my head that many times in between deployments or in between schools or, you know, how any time that he left. Um, so the, the transition was very helpful for us for him to be out of the military and out of any kind of imminent danger or deployment so that we could start to say, okay, this is what happened. That is no longer going to happen. Now let's look at what we're going to do moving forward and how to better understand this. And one of the things that we chose to do as a family, and it's different for each family, and they, you know, I would encourage anybody to do what makes sense for your family and to advocate for your own family needs. What our decision was, was to be very open with our kids about what a TBI is, what a TBI is not, and then also what PTSD is and what PTSD is not, so that we could start giving them very real information. And then when something happened for us to be able to kind of say, okay, that is typically a TBI symptom that you just witnessed. And now let's talk about how that made you feel. Let's talk about how, you know, your father's feeling and um, have all these conversations. And I I would think and wager that some people, had they been around us during that time that we were really delving into that, may have felt like we were sharing too much with our children 
But one of the things that my therapist told me a long time ago uh, during the third deployment was that if your children are asking questions, it means they're ready for the answers, you know, age appropriate answers, of course. So we made the decision that when they had the question to answer them and for him to be the main person in giving that answer, because I don't know what it's like to have a TBI and to try to explain that. So even if he were a little bit confused or had a hard time, it was important for me that I wait until he asked me for help or until he asked me to find the word for him or to better explain it. But I wanted them to hear it out of his mouth so that he could have that connection with them. And what I found is that a lot of anger that our teenage daughter had had, like there, there was a lot of resentment there that she'd been holding on for years, like it's regarding why did you leave me? Which I think is such a logical question for any kid to ask, you know, that there's not this sense of grandiose service. That's just, part of a child's, you know, lexicon as a very small kid. So being able to go back and for her to process and to ask those questions of why did you leave me? And this really made me angry for her to be able to express that and him to be able to return those answers and to also express what it was like for him to leave. And then what it was like for him to find out he had been wounded or what it was like to lose people those conversations have become incredibly important to our family. And and what I've seen is in the beginning when I was very nervous that maybe we could stunt them in some way or hurt them in a way that they weren't prepared, they actually started growing and becoming more patient, but also more inquisitive. And the more that they were appreciating his feelings, they were also starting to validate their own and to understand that all four of us had very different experiences during that time in the military and that all four of us equally has a right to express those different experiences. So it's, it's been quite a journey. We're still on it. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a daily conversation. Um, but I'm really grateful that my husband's will, been willing to be so open. I like how um, you have uh, explained and talked about your children and, and how they're affected in all of this and also what was what was appropriate for them to express themselves and be a part of this journey, which I, I think is very important. And uh, what were, in, in your opinion, what are some of the resources that you used that maybe worked or didn't work or, or resources that... Um, you would like to speak about whether it be therapy or counseling uh what what worked for you all and what do you what do you think is uh, uh really good as far as resources in dealing with this situation mm -hmm. we had a what i would consider a therapeutic hodgepodge approach and i i started all of this with therapy for myself and therapy for my daughter at the time um, she was six years old the first time I took her in to see a therapist. And honestly, I wish I could have taken her in earlier, but it was very hard to get someone to see a kid that young. So we've always been a proponent of therapy. And even while my husband was in the military, he was one of those amazing soldiers that I'm incredibly proud of who was getting therapy while in the military and trying to be that person to normalize it. It still took a bit of a toll on him, you know, emotionally trying to fight that stereotype, but he worked really hard to fight it. So he was also doing therapy. And then um, I became, I, I've always been a lover of horses, always enjoyed being around them and just the feelings that I've had about uh, what I feel like animals and horses can do. So equine therapy also became a very um, approachable type of therapeutic option for us. We've done art therapy, music therapy, acupuncture, massage therapy, um, talk therapy, marriage counseling. And, uh, you know, honestly, a little bit in between there. there. There are so many programs offered at the VA here. We've done writing programs, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, there are programs here to for for transitional veterans who are coming out of homelessness and into the workforce. There's even a program to teach them how to play the guitar, and at the end they get their own guitar. So I 
I feel very fortunate that we're living in a place in a space where the VA and this community is so focused on holistic concepts and ideas. But for myself, the, the main thing that I would want to put out there is I believe completely in healing happening in a community. So for myself, it has been speaking the words out loud and having another per- person to witness that. And sometimes for me, that other person has been on the internet, you know, or through a letter that somebody wrote me about my book and just hearing somebody else say, I, I feel the same way and you're not alone. The power in that is what helped me to take the, the next step to get to the next therapy that I needed. But I'm not sure I would have stood up again if I didn't have another person say, me too, and I'm here with you. So I believe completely in that being such a huge aspect of this is finding community and finding your people who will validate those feelings. And they may not know what to do with them, and you may not know what to do with them, but you now have you know more feet to help you take that step into the next arena for where you go from there. The other thing that I would really encourage a family or anyone to look at, and I I do feel that there are countless books, there are so many tools out there, and, you know, USO has so many great programs, the MWR has so many great programs. If, if you're looking for a tool to help you find the words, I believe the book Nonviolent Communication is one of the most powerful things I've ever read because it helped me find a way to express myself about the very, you know, righteously angry <laughs> things that I had in my mind or in my body, but to find a way to put that anger out there in the conversation in such a way that my husband could completely understand it was not him making me angry and I was not blaming him. And it allowed us to come to the issue jointly and together. And that union of approaching the problem together became the key to opening everything for us. And I put so much value in that book, because before I read it, I would have expressed myself completely the opposite. And I'm not sure that we would have gotten very far at all. Uh, thank you, Melissa, for sharing that book. And uh, I think I'm going to ask you a question about that later on. <laughs> but that mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully you have some more books. But uh, one of the things, too, that uh, just one more for me, uh, sort of a second on this, and this is great information for our audience listening. Um, when it comes to counseling, Um, many of the wounded warriors that I've worked with, family members, um, it's not always successful. They will, you know, there's, there's sometimes more than one opportunity to get counseling, whether you do it through TRICARE, whether you do it through the VA, whether you do it through Given Hour, an organization that does pro bono counseling, whatever, um, path that you find to get your counseling, uh, many times, even on the first try, it is not successful. Do you have any experience on that or can you speak about that? And what would you encourage somebody who is trying to find the right counselor for them? Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. I have um, been to some absolutely terrible counselors. (laughs) I've had, you know, people say things to me like, well, honey, you're doing the best you can. There's nothing I can do for you. And that shuts me down every time. I don't like to be called honey, sweetheart or any of that. Um, But when she was just like, there's nothing I can do for you. You're doing the best you can. And then I've also been told you're lucky he's not hurt more, Uh, you know, and comments like that. I'm, I'm not quite sure that another person understands just how much courage or effort it took to open the door and to even make the phone call and then to feel or be told your situation is not enough for me to consider taking you on or you should be glad you're doing as well as you are. Well, I have the right to want my own 100% and everybody has the right and deserves their own 100% and it's not up to a counselor to tell you where you fall on that. And I think for myself, I'm just stubborn enough to keep fighting and to keep looking. But for my husband, it was pretty devastating. The times that he had counselors that just really did not show up for him or did not do a good job. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes they were even partially responsible for sending him to the brink. And that's just simply not okay. And I think in those moments, when a person cannot see his worth to keep going, you know, I try not to overstep my bounds in terms of being a caregiver or to do more when he's perfectly capable of doing what what he needs to do. But that was one moment where I stepped over and completely advocated and then also spent a lot of time making sure that he understood how worthy he was and that we would go together to try to find somebody. And that if I were in the room, nobody would talk to him like that. And I didn't care who they were. So I think for him to know that somebody was in his corner who was willing to get scrappy and feisty um, was a big help. And then also for my daughter, I had a very negative experience because um, in my book, I talk about her being 20 months old and being completely devastated that her dad was gone. And I knew it and I could feel it and I could see it. I was with her every day and I knew she was mourning him and in so much pain and had no way to express it. And when I tried to talk to a counselor about it, I was told she's too young. She doesn't even know what's going on. And you're basically creating this situation and you're making it worse. And I actually listened at that time and I wish that I had not because then we went through four more years that I could have been helping her in different ways. So when she was six and he deployed again, I took her and she was, you know, very vocal, but still couldn't explain her reason for the pain. I mean, it's a very, it's, it's a lot for a six-year-old to try to articulate. So she was very vocal. She was very angry. She was acting out. And I took her to a counselor and she, she was sitting, That my daughter sat down at the time. She was very into dinosaurs and she drew this dinosaur and the dinosaur just kept crying. She just kept drawing more tears and more tears. And I'm sitting there crying, you know, just completely falling apart, watching this baby draw a sobbing dinosaur. And the whole time she was drawing it, she kept repeating like a mantra. I'm so happy. I'm just so happy. While the dinosaur's sobbing. And I'm, you know, I look at the counselor and the counselor showed it to me and I thought, okay, I've got somebody who's going to hear me. And I'm crying. And she was like, what do you make of this? And I was like, well, clearly she's not okay. And the counselor said, I think she's fine and you're doing just fine and there's nothing I can do. And that that floored me and frustrated me and made me feel like as a, a failure as a mom, made me feel like I was creating this scenario that wasn't real. And I had a counselor at the time. And so I took her to my counselor and brought in the picture and she had her draw a few more pictures. And then she pulled me aside and she was like, your daughter is suffering from situational depression. This is very clear to me and we're going to help her and we're going to work through this. And that changed everything for me. You know, from there I went on to write a kid's book where kids could interject their own story and tell it the way they wanted to tell it. And the way my daughter told her story about missing her dad was completely different than how my son articulated his story but they didn't have to tell me face to face and they didn't have to be scared to tell me they could write a book and feel like an author and think that they were, you know, creating this beautiful thing and illustrating with their own pictures to articulate themselves. But it was between my counselor saying we are going to help her. And she did. Like My family would not exist without her <laughs> right now. She, she helped us through marriage counseling. She helped both of my kids. And she pulled my daughter out of that depth. And in working with her and in creating this book for my kids, that's when I really started to see, you know, these children need a voice and they need a way forward. And it doesn't always look the way we think it should. And it's not always happy and rainbows and flags and parades and pictures of daddy on the wall. You know, sometimes it's breaking dishes or popping balloons or screaming into pillows. And that's patriotic, too. You know, that, that's that's a love for someone who's serving and it's coming out in different ways. So the counseling experience for me, I, I think 
what I would say to anyone who's listening is you're 100% worth your own 100%. And don't let anybody tell you any differently than that. And if they do, please know that it's not true and find somebody who can tell you those things. And if you can't find somebody, my email is always available. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. And uh, I, I absolutely agree with you. If it's not working for you, um, please find somebody else. And you're, you're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, with, with all of what you've told us, Melissa, and thank you so much for sharing the, the details and also just recommendations and, and part of your journey. And I know that you guys are still on, on this journey together, but some of the things that stand out for me as I listen to you is um, that you gave you gave everyone permission. You, you guys all have a safe environment to, and have the permission to talk about things. You've been able to communicate very effectively. Even when it was hard, you didn't give up. So it's, it's truly inspirational in that way. And when you have the understanding of maybe what your warrior is, is going through and also that you're being heard too, I think it just gives almost like a breath of fresh air to the whole situation or it gives you the ability to just exhale a little bit and let some of the air out because you've been just holding it for so long. So mm-hmm. I, I think there are, are, there's so much to learn, not only from counseling and, um, you know, journey, your, your journey together as a family, but there's a lot to learn from one another. There really, really is. And I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, So we've talked about your husband transitioning from military to civilian life, but we've talked a little bit about caregiving. But can you give us a little or tell our listeners a little bit about what your transition was from from being an active duty military spouse to now being his caregiver and mm. how how that transition has happened mm. it's been a very interesting transition um i will tell you that I fully expected to be his caregiver because I was already acting as one for you know for a long time right. for him before you know the military or anybody else acknowledged that. But what I did not expect is you know I thought I was processing all of this as we went and you know going to therapy and I was doing everything the right way, and then when we transitioned into civilian life. For me, it was a breath of fresh air and also not a huge change because my job did not really change. My job uh, was, I, I worked from home doing the work that I was doing with military communities. So that didn't really change for me. And uh, the kids were very happy in their new school. We were very happy in our new location. The VA is amazing. So that transition for me felt like it was going to be very easy. And I saw many people talking about missing the military, missing the military community. And for me, that wasn't happening because my military community was still with me. The way I had been working with them for so long was online. And so none of that changed. So I thought I was going to be just fine and sail through this. And I was prepared for him to have a a major transition and struggle with structure and you know, frustrations with civilians and all of that happened to a certain extent. What I did not expect was the amount of anger that came out of me. And it lasted for about a year and I couldn't understand it. And you know, and I wasn't angry all the time because honestly, (laughs) you guys have seen where I live. It's pretty impossible to be angry when you've got this kind of scenery around you. (laughs) (laughs) That is a true statement. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, every day I I would think I was doing just fine. And then I would have this huge surge of anger. And I don't like being angry. I'm actually pretty good at it, but I don't like feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And I I like calm and peace. 
And I could not put my finger on it. And so I did what I do and I went back online and I'm like, you know, I go on the Her War Facebook page and I'm like, confession, I'm just so angry and I don't know why. Like, it's, we're not even still in the lifestyle. And then there was this guilt that I felt like I didn't have any right to that anger anymore when I still had people on my team going through deployments mm-hmm. and my husband was safe. So it took me a long time to find the guts to say that. There was a lot of guilt around it. There was a lot of survivor's guilt around it. Um, you know, I, why am I angry when he's here and other people don't have their husbands? Like, what right do I have to any of that? And finally, one day I realized, you know, and then, of course, I had all these people come out of the woodwork again and, and give me that validation again, which is just, I mean, I, I can't ever repay people for how that impacted me. But for them to say, me too, I'm so angry and I don't know why. And so I had this group of people to sit down and start processing that with like my, my military wife peeps to be like, why in the world are we so angry? And I had this realization, you know, in talking with them that I know now that he's safe and 15 years worth of fear was coming out of me. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, 10 years of knowing that he was hurt and not knowing what to do with it or where our future was going to go or even mourning what we had before the military and looking at how different it is. The life is after the military. My husband and I knew each other before he went active duty. You know, we spent three years together before any of that started. So I had the whole story and to be able to sit back and be like, I'm angry because I didn't get a chance to be all that time. And I'm also now able to be, because, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. I was now able to admit how terrified I was the whole time. And I was also finally able to say, I'm mad at you because you left me. Because I feel like when you're in that situation, I don't feel like, for myself, I didn't feel like I could say that out loud while he was still leaving. I didn't want to rattle him. I didn't, I wanted him to come home safe. I didn't want to say those things that were buried deep down. And and what I definitely know is you can't bury things forever. It's going to come out of you one way or the other. <laughs> and uh, that transition, it, it just kind of exploded out of me, everything that I was never able to say. And um, that was a difficult transition. It was not one I was prepared for. I was expecting all of the typical <laughs> military to civilian life transitions. And I wasn't necessarily expecting all of that emotional stuff to come out, all of that baggage to come out. And interestingly, once I quit trying to hide it or quit trying to be perfect around my family and I sat down at the table one night and was just like, I'm just so mad and started crying and actually saying these things. Then my kids started articulating similar things that, you know, they needed to say for a long time, but felt like they couldn't. And then my husband started articulating how angry it made for him to leave us and to come home and feel like his kids had grown without him and they had changed and evolved or he missed birthdays. And it was intriguing. And once again, (laughs) a huge slap across the face, like sit down and tell somebody how you're feeling. They quit trying to to keep it bottled up. But, um, that first year was a very difficult transition and it was difficult for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was not expecting that I had padded the room for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a bit of a shock. Melissa, you have, uh, given us so much really good information and a lot of really good resources and just sharing your personal stories, which I think, Uh, can speak to a lot of families out there. So thank you. And one of the things I just want to ask you uh, concerning the transition, which I also want to, uh, for me, I would acknowledge that when individuals are transitioning or families are transitioning, it can take a long time. Um, Some people Mm -hmm. can be out of the military for years and they are still transitioning and that's okay. So what would, in your opinion, Uh, to our audience out there, whether it be uh, caregivers, spouses, veterans themselves, uh, children of veterans. Do you have any, any kind of tips to share on, on 
what would make the transition easier and to allow individuals to or families to thrive after post-military? I think the biggest thing that I would just say out loud is please know you're not alone. And that that crazy feeling that you have is not just you, Um, you know, and, and please don't be afraid to reach out because there are countless people out there feeling the same way. It just seems to be a conversation that we're not having so vocally. Um, but just know that it's it's not just you. One incredibly valuable resource for me has been Ken Jones. And he is a Vietnam veteran who also then specialized in ways to understand and quantify trauma after his experiences in Vietnam. And he's dedicated his life to figuring out ways to help troops come home. And by home, he means spiritually returning, you know, like once you are, have your feet back on the soil, how do you get the full person home again? And he has two free books that are available to be downloaded on his website. And one is called life after combat. And that is for the person returning from the military life and moving into the civilian world The other one is called When Our Troops Come Home, and that's for everybody who loves that person who's returning, and they are incredibly valuable. I I think that he puts things in such a way that help a warrior feel completely understood and also help a spouse to fully grasp what is happening. And uh, or a partner or mother or father, you know, anyone who loves someone in uniform. That is he's somebody that I highly recommend. He's not working as much as he used to. He and I did record conversations together as well as my partner at the time, Chris, on our website, her war, her voice. They're called heart conversations. And they're just three or four minute little segments talking about things like how to help someone through a flashback or how to wake someone up through a nightmare, um, how to better understand PTSD, how to also express yourself as the partner or someone living with someone with PTSD. And I also spent time talking with his wife and we have several recordings with her too on his website where she talks, you know, what it's like to be on the other side of a situation and the reason why I found this so valuable is because anybody in the current conflict situation or still in it, it's still happening. So we don't necessarily have a mentor to help us understand what's happening for us as a group, as a collective group, and as individuals. We certainly have people you know, who are veterans now and, and somebody like my husband who's willing to reach back to somebody still in and say, hey this is normal and talk to me. And so there's so much value in having those mentors and having those people who are willing to reach the hand back. But I think there's something even more powerful having the intergenerational mentors who've had, you know, 30, 40, 50 years out of the war and into civilian life to be able to reach back and say, listen, it's not always going to feel like this. And here's a way you can get to that. And that, I think, is what we're missing. It's still something that I want to somehow create, that we have Vietnam veterans or Korean veterans who are willing to pull these veterans forward and help them better understand what's happening. So if there is a way to find that person in your life or if there's someone you know who is a Vietnam veteran or a Korean veteran or a Persian Gulf War veteran, you know, just being able to sit down and talk with them and talk with that family and normalize their experience because they didn't get that. And then also in return, they can normalize our experience. That I think is the way that we look at what it means to intergenerationally heal and to heal through community. And Ken Jones for me and my husband and my kids, he was the person that we turned to when we had questions because he didn't always have the answers, but he was willing to say, I'll keep looking or we'll work through this together because I've got the time, whereas you're still in it. And I think that that is the most powerful thing I've experienced. And that's what I would encourage everybody to 
experience. And if you can't find your own Ken Jones, he is available on our website and you can listen. Thank you, Melissa. Ken is, Ken is a remarkable man. And I know that with some of the work that EOD Warrior Foundation has done with her war, her voice, we have utilized Ken in the past as just some of the uh, integrated pieces to a retreat. And it's, it's been very helpful and enlightening and he mm. is very easy to listen to and talk to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are um, getting ready to wrap things up, but if you could share one self-care tip with a spouse or a child out there, what, what would it be? I think there's so much advice for people with self-care and so many things that people can do. And then I think the question that immediately should follow after that is why aren't we doing it? So I feel like I, you know, for myself, I like to write, I meditate, I like to do yoga. There are are many things. I love being outside. You know, there are many things that fill my soul. The hurdle is how often I put someone else in front of me (laughs) to do mm-hmm. it. Which is, so, yeah. And that, I mean, as a mom, it's, it's very difficult not to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I would say it's an epidemic, you know, especially amongst the caregiver community, um, very much an epidemic. <laughs> and so I, I feel like that there are countless tips that I can give, you know, like make sure that you're taking 10 minutes for yourself or do five minutes of breathing. Everybody has five minutes. Even if you say you don't have time, you do have five minutes. I have five minutes. But I think what I want to ask and what I want to put out there and to myself as well, why am I not doing it? So I think the best self-care tip I can give you is to sit down and ask yourself, why am I not doing it? Mm -hmm. What is keeping me from it? What is the block? And what is the fear? Mm -hmm. Because for myself, the fear of actually taking self-care is that I'm going to look selfish. Mm And I'm going to look like I don't care or if, you know, if my kids are having a bad day, but I've planned a massage that day, I feel like I should cancel it so I could be there for my kids. So it's remembering, and this came from, you know, my, my therapist, Bev Rogers, remembering a little bit of self is not selfish. And those are things that I have to say to myself over and over again, because it's really easy for me to do self-care when everything's going well. Mm-hmm. But when I need it the most is when everything's falling apart. And mm-hmm. so taking that five to 10 minutes when it's a really bad day, that's what I would say is my greatest self-care tip. And I don't always do it. <laughs> so also find yourself someone who will ask you that question. Cause I have people on my team. When I go into our, our Facebook page and talk about my struggles, the First question I get from somebody is, have you eaten today? Mm -hmm. Did you take five minutes? And we have this thing called take 10. So her wore her voice, take 10. And so it's turned into, have you taken your 10? Mm -hmm. So just having somebody else hold you accountable is, is amazing too. So if you can find your buddy and just have your take 10 buddy, that will go a long way. Right. And man, oh man, aren't we uh, all guilty of laying out, you know, some really cool self-care plans. This is what I'm going to do. And they get derailed very easily. And it's, and it's not selfish (laughs) to take the time for yourself. But I think it's interesting that in a lot of ways we have a tendency just to put ourselves on the back burner in order to help someone else. But honestly, at the end of it, there can be resentment that builds up in addition to maybe you weren't as effective in helping that person because you're not taking care of yourself too. Mm -hmm. Well, and another thing I'll add to that, Sherry, is that, you know, if you are a mother, you want to be a good mother. And there's that, you know, that um, statement that little eyes are always watching, little ears are always listening. And when you model when I have chosen to model well and say, I'm going to step away and take 10 minutes, I need to breathe and reset. When I come back, I'm much more prepared and they respond to that. They respond to the change and the difference 
and they learn that it is possible to make a different choice. So for myself, one of the ways that I started implementing self-care in a better way was remembering that I was helping and teaching my children. And if I can put a lot of my, (laughs) well, I'm helping my kids excuse onto helping myself, then I find that I will do it quicker Mm -hmm. and I will model it better. And I'm very proud when I see either one of them say, I'm going to go take a few minutes Mm -hmm. or, you know, we'll come back to this. I I need a break. Mm -hmm. Um, So I also would encourage you that if you can do it for someone else, <laughs> it makes it a little bit easier and you don't feel so selfish. Sure, sure. Well, I think we've um, talked a little bit about this in reference to self-care in particular, but if there was if there was one thing um, that you could offer to other military spouses about maybe transitioning from military life to civilian life, is there anything in particular that you can think of that would be helpful to them? I think it's such an individual process that I'm not sure I could group it into, you know, we all feel this or we all think that. And I guess that's what I would want to put forward is don't compare your story to someone else's, Mm -hmm. even though we will anyway. I think we all do (laughs) anyway. But don't compare your story to someone else's transition. And also be kind with yourself. I, I think in these moments, it's it's easy to keep thinking, I just need to keep plowing forward or I need to keep going or I don't want to think about what happened. Now we're in a different phase and looking at the future. And a lot of times that future has a lot of weight to it, like with, with new jobs in a civilian world or, um, you know, figuring out what you're going to do about insurance. And so there are a lot of stressors that come with that, too. But I would encourage people to be kind with yourself and realize you just went through a lot Mm -hmm. and it was a lot at a rapid fire pace that you didn't have a chance to sit down and really think about. And even if you don't want to sit down and and think about all that happened or really spend time there, just know that your body may still be putting that forward Mm -hmm. and it still may come out of you against your will. So be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is where I would ask you to say, what would you say to your best friend? If your best friend was like, I'm just so frustrated and I don't know what we're going to do and I'm worried and I'm scared and I also am grateful and I'm happy and all of it feels like a big cyclone inside my head. What would you say to your best friend? And if you can have that kind of compassion for your best friend, then just use those words back to yourself and and even fake it till you make it. Just say those words to yourself until you start to feel those words. Because every story is different and you deserve your own 100%. And if you're not there yet, be kind to yourself. I like that. Giving, giving yourself a little bit of grace is, is a good thing. Absolutely. Mm. Well, now for the, the fun and exciting part. Um, of this uh, interview <laughs> the bonus round and the bonus round is so I had to say uh, not so rapid fire questions because I am not quick and speedy when I'm getting the words out however in my brain I am fast <laughs> <laughs> it's like me running right like right? I'm running so fast <laughs> I'm working so hard I'm working so hard <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, um, here we go. Are you ready? I think so. Okay. What's your the hardest questions. Oh, no. No, <laughs> they're not hard. They're not hard. Okay. What's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, see, Sherry, I've even been thinking about this. I listen to you ask questions on the other podcast. I'm like, what would I say? Mm-hmm. I love movies and I'm struggling not to put them in categories so that I can feel better about myself (laughs) and not not feel like I'm sliding one over top of the other. You can can do that. You can say my favorite, you know, you could say my favorite comedy is or my favorite drama is or what have you. If if that makes you feel better, that that will work fine. Sherry would be on the phone forever if I do. I I just (laughs) love movies. 
Um, I think if, if I had to pick, like give you a rapid fire answer, the one that I will always come back to and people hear me quote all the time, even though they might not know what I'm talking about is so I married an ax murderer, (laughs) 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 which makes me crack up to the point of tears every time I watch that movie. I love the beatnik. I love all of the, the jokes. I love Mike Myers. I love when he stares at the camera, it's it, all of it. Oh my gosh. Cracks me up. I have never watched it. Now I'm going to have to put it on my what? list. Yes. Yes. You, you might hate it. You know, it's... I'm so far behind Melissa. Like I am like <laughs> really far behind in my movie watching. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm going to request that you, you send me text messages. If you do watch it, okay. it's <laughs> hilarious. Have you seen it, Mike? I have, but uh, I think it was one of those movies where sometimes when you're tired and you watch a movie, you're not laughing a lot. You got to be in like in, a, in the right frame of mind. So I'm, I'm gonna go back and check it out again. I'm like, what am I missing here? There must be some nuggets I didn't get out of it the first time. I'm gonna go watch it again. Uh, well, I mean, I tell you, it was. It's funny because I've been asked this question a few times, and every time I answer with this movie, people are shocked because they're like. <laughs> I expected you to like some 1940s silent Bambi. film, like some kind of noir film. Yeah. And, you know, those are great, but um, I am a huge Saturday Night Live junkie. I love Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. I am a diehard fan. Never going to give it up no matter how how bad it gets. Like people hear me say all the time, like, you just got to stick with it through the slumps because yeah. somebody brilliant coming along. So. Yeah. Honestly, any Saturday Night Live movie spinoff always gets my attention, and I laugh so hard that people are embarrassed to be around me. <laughs> <laughs> well, laughter is is one of the best medicines in the world, Melissa. So I think it's <laughs> I think it's great if you can get it from a movie from wherever you get it from. But uh, mm. I'm going to have to put that on my list of of movies to watch. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you had one book to read only, mm-hmm. over and over again, what would it be? Sherry Beck. This is my nightmare question. Um, I okay, so the, I'm giving two because I, I feel like I'm failing one if I don't give the other. So Barbara King's author is my writing icon and I got a chance to meet her last year and I cried like a nut hole. Like, I mean, (laughs) just bawled all over her. (laughs) um, The Poisonwood Bible, I Mm. think is one of the greatest books I've ever read. And um, she inspired me from the moment I read the bean trees. That was the first book I ever taught in a, English classroom was the bean trees and um, everything about you. Know, she's a, she's Kentucky born. She moved to Arizona, but we don't count that. She's Kentucky born and Kentucky author. And she just really inspired me. And she went to the same school and taught at the same school that I went to graduate school in Kentucky. And um, there was something about watching a Kentucky girl make it. Mm-hmm. on such a, a big scale and to be a fierce writer and to not be scared of what she's saying. Um, I, I just, I love her. So the, the Poisonwood Bible and then the color purple, oh mm-hmm. my goodness. And I love that movie too, mm-hmm. but the book I've read it so many times and marked it up. The pages are falling out and um, there's just something so raw and beautiful about that book and it speaks to such a deep core of of pain and struggle and victory and truth and I just I love it. So I would pick those two. Cool. Very cool. The color purple is awesome. Mm-hmm. I have read that and I have read I have seen that movie so just just so I get a little bit of credit. it's an amazing movie (laughs) um and if you could have a superpower what would it be melissa i would want to read people's minds yeah we've we've actually started watching the boys which is a very intriguing show about superheroes as anti-heroes which is very interesting but that seems to be the one that 
that I would want the most because, you know, you don't have to be buff or anything to use it. Like you don't have to stay That's true. in shape or anything like that. You can just read people's minds and know what's coming next and not have to ever second guess anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today, Melissa. And, you know, over the years, I think I first met you in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And we did our first retreat together between our organization and yours. And uh, from that point forward, we've done a lot of great hard work along the way. And you've been a, a true inspiration to me, not only from a professional standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint, too. And it is just an honor to call you my friend. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you, Mike. It is wonderful to talk with both of you and anytime, anything that I can do. And I love the work that you're both doing and you're amazing people. And thank you so much. Thanks, Melissa. And best to your family. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.